The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and participants during this episode are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of the American College of Physicians, the editors of Annals of Internal Medicine, or the institutions that the speakers are affiliated with unless so identified. All relevant financial relationships have been mitigated. Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash on-call. However, as you point out, Bob, every day, day in and day out on the streets of our cities all across this country, and not only in cities, but in rural areas, there are firearm injury and there is firearm death. This ep- Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode of Annals on Call features an article from January of 2023 titled Firearm Injury, an Escalating Health Crisis. Joining us is Dr. Sue Bornstein, who is an internist and executive director of the Texas Medical Home Initiative. She's also the immediate past chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. We hope you learn a significant amount about firearm safety and how to communicate firearm safety with our patients. Sue, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I loved the piece that you and Christine Lane wrote on firearm injury, and I really wanted to talk a lot about firearm safety today. I know that you're a gun owner, and maybe you could talk about being a gun owner and how you deal with firearm safety as an introduction to this discussion. Well, thank you, Bob. And it's really, it's an honor and it's a pleasure to be here. I'm a big fan of yours and the work that you have done and continue to do. So I am a firearm owner. I'm a a Texan. I live on a ranch in Texas. And I actually came to, to owning a firearm later in life. And part of it was precipitated by living on a ranch where there are critters, shall we say, that uh, abound. And uh, it's also, uh, we have sort of a little gun range. But I take my obligation for firearm safety extremely seriously, because I I guess I know what they can do. We all know what they can do, but I certainly have seen what they can do. And so I always store my firearms unloaded in a gun safe with ammunition stored separately. And so I think that's that's just basic. That's really firearm safety 101. One of the things that I found interesting about the article is while we spend a lot of time talking about mass shootings, that there's just as many, if not more, deaths from suicide or from accidental firearms. And maybe you could go into that a little bit. And then, then we can sort of talk about the role of the physician in working with patients for both firearm safety, but also some other safety issues. Thank you. I'm glad that you pointed out that certainly the mass shootings, which unfortunately there are far too many in this country, get the headlines and they certainly deserve mention. However, as you point out, Bob, um, every day, day in and day out on the streets of our cities all across this country and 
not only in cities, but in rural areas, there are firearm injury and there is firearm death. And that do really sort of fades, I think, from the headlines, but it should not. And so, yes, and I'm so glad that you brought up the, the topic of suicide uh, because it is such an important issue. We think about 60% of firearm deaths are from suicide. The part about that is that clearly attempting suicide with a firearm is highly lethal. About 90% of people that attempt suicide with a firearm do com- do have a su- do complete suicide. And so if there are things that we can do to prevent that, then we certainly are obligated to do that. And it turns out that sometimes um, frequently suicide can be impulsive. And so to be able to, as primary care physicians, to recognize the risk factors that might put a person at risk for suicide are key and really important. So that's part of what we um, work with physicians about is to recognize the risk factors for suicidality as well as for harm to other people, but primarily to suicide. And and what are are some of those risk factors? Certainly a, a history of depression can be one. Um, stressful situation, whether it's a divorce, whether it's a loss of of income. Um, There are many, many uh, situations that that can present themselves. And unfortunately, uh, during COVID, we saw a significant increase, not only in suicides, but in homicides. And so I think that that was sort of the example of how a very stressful situation that persisted could put people at risk for suicide or, or even for committing homicide. And so really, to me, it comes down to knowing our patients and our patients trusting us. And I think if you ask me, that's the secret sauce for primary care physicians, right? Is that relationship that we have with our patients where we can sit down with that patient and we can ask them, in a respectful manner, what's going on? Because I think, you know, as, as astute clinicians, we recognize something's going on. And so I think teasing that out, assessing that is really what a big part of what we can do to reduce harm from firearms. You know, it reminds me of a, a patient story that a colleague told me about recently where the patient uh, had been very stable on a dose of opioids for chronic pain and then started using more. And by really talking to the patient, they found out the stress he was under. He was on the verge of becoming homeless because of some things that were going on in his life. And that'd be the time that you'd want to have these kinds of conversations as being aware. And I I would only suggest that primary care physicians in this sense could be subspecialists who are following a patient like an endocrinologist following a patient with diabetes who's not getting primary care elsewhere or a rheumatologist might do it, or infectious disease doctors who take care of HIV patients, that might be the the primary patient. So I think we have to think of this primary care in a a broader sense. Absolutely. Could not agree more. So nephrologists who take care of people with chronic renal insufficiency, yeah, oncologists, absolutely. I I guess I mean that the primary care universe writ large, which would certainly include our subspecialists. Yeah. As, as one who works in the hospital a great deal, what might be the clues that we would have when we don't know the patient uh, and we're taking care of them? And how might we communicate that with our uh, primary care colleagues? 
Well, that may be a little more, that, that may, that's probably a little bit more challenging again, because in most cases you don't really know that patient, mm-hmm. but I think a, a basic assessment of their, uh, like a DSM type thing or a mini mental status or mm-hmm. some kind of um, depression scale measurement, I think done in a, in a obviously in a respectful way mm-hmm. um, can p- perhaps uncover um, the potential for, for self-harm or for uh, harming others. Um, I also think a history of heavy alcohol use is actually a risk factor in homes for firearm injury. Persons with dementia, we know now that persons with dementia who are firearm owners can find themselves in situations where they can hurt themselves or other people. And you mentioned substance use, that is one as well. I don't want to characterize people with a broad brush by any means, but I think those are the types of things that we look at. But again, stress, stressors. I also think another big, big topic here is um, intimate partner violence. Mm -hmm. So there is, it's very clear that intimate partner violence can lead and does lead to, to homicide. And so I think being alert to clues for that how did you get your injury, et cetera, et cetera. I think those are are all red flags that there may be more going on there. When you've had this sense uh, with with the patient that uh, they might be at risk, can you sort of go over how you have that conversation? It might be helpful to some of us who uh, have not been doing this on a regular basis. To me, the, the really the overarching concept here and the principle is harm reduction. We want our patients to be healthy and we want them to be free from harm. And I think that is the basic premise of this. And I think if we approach our patients with that kind of mindset, then I think they may be more receptive. They likely will be more receptive. I think there is, you know, it's one thing to talk to people about substance use, which can be challenging, or sexual behaviors, which can also be challenging. This one does tend to have more potential, I think, for pushback. And, you know, a a big discussion about the Second Amendment is probably beyond the scope here, but this is different in some ways from other risk factors. However, I don't think we should treat it differently. I think that we should treat it in a very matter-of-fact way. And one of my friends uh, who's an emergency medicine doc in Colorado, Emmy Betts, says she skips the do you have firearms. She goes right to are your firearms securely stored? I had a conversation with a Texas colleague the other day. He said the exact same thing. Emergency medicine doc, pediatrician. He said, I assume that people have firearms. So, you know, you could sort of avoid that could be perceived as sort of accusatory. It's like, do you have a gun? And then that might slow down. So, so I think it's more it's matter of fact. But so I think if we if we can if we tease out that there may be something going on, that there may be some some severe depression or severe stress that could could precipitate injury, then I think we need to identify what can we do? How can we help that person? And I think one of the one of the um, obvious things is to say, is there someone that you trust that could kind of temporarily store your your firearms because that that, that sometimes can happen. Somebody in a family, a family member could could store their firearms. And you know, we talk a lot about extreme risk protection orders or red flag laws. But it's interesting, one of the things that is happening nationally is that there there's a movement for gun stores and sporting goods stores to actually serve that function, to temporarily store 
people's guns if they are in a crisis or if they are in some kind of a, a dangerous situation themselves or if they are at high risk for having their firearms stolen. So there are things like extreme risk protection orders. That's a legal process. Um, but there are things that can be done short of that as well. I'm aware of a very wealthy neighborhood where cars are broken into, often unlocked, and all they do is steal the guns. Maybe that is another type of advice we can give people that uh, if you have a gun in your car, make sure it's hidden, secure, Absolutely. and Absolutely. and the doors are locked. Absolutely. Uh, because cause that sort of leads us into a very difficult situation where some of the harms are occurring in uh, minority populations. They're much more likely to be involved in harm from firearms. And do you have any thoughts about that? And if you have patients in that area, but a lot of times these people are not seeking primary care. That is such an important point, and I'm so glad you brought it up, because this is a big health equity issue. And as you know, the college is very committed to improving health equity, uh, re- reducing inequities. And as you pointed out, people that are at the highest, the highest risk by far of dying from firearms are young black males. And so you're right that a young black male may not have a relationship with a primary care practitioner so that really, then we look to our communities. And, and I think, Bob, that we all acknowledge that not one thing is going to solve this, right? The primary care workforce has an important role, but so do communities. So do hospitals. There are some really excellent hospital violence intervention programs that are around. And there's a lot of work that is being done in communities through mentoring mm-hmm. youth at risk. And so it really takes all of these things. It's a heavy lift. We have to really change the social structure in terms of reducing inequities and reducing systemic racism and increasing opportunities for young people to to find their way into a better life. And these things take time and they take resources, but there is evidence that they can work. So it, it takes lots and lots of people and lots of lots of different organizations and different sectors of, of our society to really work on this. As the past chair of the Board of Regents of American College Physicians, the college is also doing public policy and trying to influence how uh, legislators think about this. Could you just talk about that for a minute or two, some of the things that the college is working on you know, on behalf of our patients and behalf of our physicians. Thank you. We're the college is doing a lot, and as you know, for close to thirty years, the college has uh, called out this uh, firearm injury as a public health issue and a, a public health crisis. We have written multiple position papers, as you are aware, and um, we have collaborated a couple of times in the last ten years or so with different organizations public health organizations, surgeons, family docs, uh, collaborated with the American Bar Association on a call to action to reduce firearm injury. I think though, Bob, I think we all recognize that (laughs) we have plenty of policy. (laughs) The lack of policy is not the issue here. So I'm a big believer in the colleges too in collaborating. So just briefly, we are part, uh, ACP is part of a firearm injury prevention uh, group. It's a consortium of the American College of Surgeons, pediatricians, 
emergency docs, CMSS, and ACP. We had a, our second firearm summit in September in Chicago. 46 organizations were there. And we agreed on a lot of different things. And the other thing we agreed on now, we we created a infrastructure to move forward with this. We have work groups and we are going to be working on different aspects, whether it's policy, whether it's graduate medical education, how do you teach residents and medical students how to talk to their patients about this? So again, I'm a believer in collaboration and I think that more is better, um, but I'm very proud of what the college has done. We recently had a, a firearm uh, injury forum for, through annals, which was very well attended. And I think it went very well. We had a, a story slam uh, in December and I really have to call out Christine Lane and her colleagues for their consistent, persistent vocal support of reducing firearm injury and death. And they have, they are just really phenomenal. All their resources are online free of charge to anybody, 80 plus articles about firearm injury. So we are highly committed to this. I thought of one other thing that I'd like you to opine on, and that is the role of accidental use of firearms by children and talking uh, especially to young parents uh, about storing firearms in a way that their kids can't get a hold of them, because this is maybe the most tragic of all the tragic stories we talk about. You're so right. And and the thing is, it's so preventable in some in most cases. And so, you know, our pediatrician colleagues, as you well know, are really good at this. They're really mm-hmm. good at talking to, to their to their patients, the parents and the kids about challenging things. But this is just part of the routine. You know, do you use a car seat? Do you how does the, the child sleep, et cetera, et cetera. And this is no different. And so I think statistically, pediatricians do a much better job asking people and, and, and informing people how to safely or securely store firearms. Pediatricians give away gun locks frequently. Um, I talked to somebody recently who his hospital system gives has given away gun safes. And so I think if, if, if you're out there saying, okay, you're going to own a gun, we're okay with that. But if you're going to own a gun, you need to be responsible. And you're right. It, certainly there are laws that, you know, could penalize parents, but my God, that is the last thing that we want to see happen, right? We want to prevent these things and there are ways to do it, but we've got to have that conversation. Well, as you were talking, it occurred to me as a grandfather mm-hmm. that while the parents are likely to have a conversation with the pediatrician, the grandparents aren't. And when you're a primary care physician, you usually know that the that when the grandparents have a new grandchild because you get to see their pictures. As a totally obnoxious grandfather, I do that all the time. And uh, that may be an opportunity to have have a conversation about gun safety to make sure that the, when the grandchildren come over, they don't have any access to those firearms. That is an excellent point. I also hear of people whose kids are going to somebody else's house for a play date now asking, do you have firearms? And if you do, are they safely or securely stored? So yeah, I think that's a great point. Sue, I can't thank you enough for showing me and showing our listeners how we can do a better job of trying to help our patients uh, and not just our patients, but, but uh, their significant others, their children, their grandchildren, et cetera. And I think this is very, very important as part of 
uh, our toolbox to be better primary care physicians writ large uh, in all the specialties. So thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you, Bob. It's my pleasure. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. In this wide-ranging discussion, we discussed the proper storage of firearms. Uh, We spent quite a bit of time talking about how one might suspect that someone is at risk for either suicide or homicidal activities, and specifically, how do we talk to patients about this? To me, the most interesting thing was assuming the patient's have firearms and ask them what they're doing to keep them safe rather than asking them uh, whether or not they have guns in the house. This seems to be a better strategy to try to sort out ways to have patients be protected from themselves and to protect others from our patients. This is part of the problem. It doesn't answer all the questions, but hopefully it will help you in the conversations you have with your patients about firearms. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash on call.